I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to read from page 1528. Luke chapter 10, page 1528 uh, in the Brown Bibles. By the way, if you, don't, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're very welcome to keep um, one of the church Bibles and, uh, and take it home with you. We'd love you to have a Bible. So please turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I want to read you two verses from Galatians 6. You no need to turn, but Galatians 6, 9 to 10 says this. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now we're nearing the end of the series that we've been in for the last past couple of months, which has been on the whole subject of of what it means to be the church in the city, what it means for us to be on mission with Jesus, to feel a calling, uh, to be part of his body, but not just in any random place, but in one of the greatest cities in the world. And God's interest, as we see it in the Bible, um, for cities, his passion for cities, his love for the people in cities, and his desire that the church of God be in cities, leavening cities, transforming cities, being, um, extending the kingdom of God in them. And uh, certainly, I know we've all felt incredible sense of provocation in this, haven't we? Some of us more than others. And it's just been really interesting to wrestle with what it means to be in London at this moment. Next week, I want to do the last message in that series on the whole theme of leaving the city. Um, I'm really conscious that the nature of being in London is that we have a very transient um, population and we have a transient church. And I want to speak into the whole theme of what it means to, be, um, to leave and the good reasons, the bad reasons why we leave London and how you can be on board with what Jesus wants to do through your life in, as you plan the next stages of your life beyond this city and what God might want to do through you. But for now, we're here. And I want to put in one of the last pieces in the puzzle today, 
um, in terms of what it means for us to be in the city. And it has to do with this whole theme of um, loving our neighbors. When you think about the characteristics of the city, what do you think jumps to mind? And we've, we've looked at many of these themes, haven't we? The fact that the city is full of wealth. It's extraordinary wealth, especially in comparison with other parts of the country. The center of great business, the center of art, the center of culture, the center of intellectual life, of diversity, of all the nations coming to London. All these things are things which the church is interested in at some level. But there's one thing which um, we've got to recall, that when you see the Bible, the, the city is, is the place of safety. The city is the place where people come who are experiencing need in life, who have profound needs. And the city is the place where people flee to. It's one of the reasons why London is so full of immigrants from all around the world, because the city is a place of opportunity and of safety. And therefore, it means that in the city, you have a concentration of human need. The thing about cities, especially a city like London, is not only do they attract people with need, but they also exacerbate sometimes and bring out new needs in human life and human hearts. So you'd have to be very, very callous or blind to not see that we are in a city of extraordinary human need, aren't we? It's everywhere all around us. Now, I think this is one of the reasons why God's people have always made a beeline for cities. It's into this that we need to now think about some of the facts of history, friends. Starting way back with the early church, the early church was marked because of an extraordinary compassion for the needs of the society around her. In Rodney Stark's book, The Triumph of Christianity, he says how in the midst of squalor, misery, illness, and the anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. And then he talks about the pagan world. He says, in In contrast, the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you so automatically think the other way these days, but you don't realize how much that's because your mind has been formed by the Christian worldview. In the ancient world, in the Roman world, mercy and pity were viewed as character defects. He says, because mercy involved providing unearned help or relief, and so it's contrary to justice. And so the philosophers taught that mercy is not governed by reason. They said pity was a defect of character, unworthy of the wise, and excusable only in those who've not yet grown up. So only children show pity. They said, when you grow up into adulthood, you're no longer the kind of person who shows pity or mercy to the people around you. And uh, Rodney starts to, tell, starts to tell stories of examples of this in the cities where knees grow up. And in the, in the second, third centuries, there were plagues that began to move rapidly through the Roman Empire and, and killed many, many, many people. Massive portions of the population were wiped out by plagues, perhaps smallpox or something similar. And one of the unique things about the church at that time, there was a story of, a, by the way, a, a, a classical doctor called Garlin who were in Rome, when, he, when the plague began to afflict, the first plague in the, first, in the second century came, Garland fled to his country house as a symbol, really, of the typical response to the suffering and sickness when the plagues were afflicting, afflicting cities. But you have the records of what the early churches did at those times. 
Now here's a letter from a bishop called Dionysius, who was in a city called Alexandria. I think it's the Alexandria in Egypt. And he says, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. So they looked after the sick, and then he says, they died as a result themselves, but they died happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. So they actually helped people recover while they themselves died. He says, the best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, its elders, deacons and laymen winning high commendation so that in death, in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. He says the men and women who gave their lives at the times of the plagues by looking after the sick. And in contrast, by the way, in the pagan homes, when people were sick, they threw them out of the home and there were bodies piled up in the streets. He says the Christians were different. They were, they were different because they believed in a God of mercy and a God who is compassionate. And they felt profound heart-level motivation. But could you imagine how devastating this must have felt to the churches when their best people, the people most moved by compassion, were the ones who would run to the sickness and were the ones who died the quickest in these situations. I find it amazingly provocative. This is just one example. You can read about all kinds of examples in the early church, how they would rescue babies that were abandoned on hillsides and bring in orphans and these kinds of things. And it was one of the reasons why the church stood out so starkly in contrast to the world around them. And you move forward through history and you begin to realize that this has been the the case in the Western world. Uh, Obviously, there's been moments where the church has not done the right things, but The church in the West has been at the forefront of liberating slaves, of anti-child labor laws, of free education, all these things because Christians have been motivated by the God that we worship, a God who the Bible says so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now when you worship a God, and we were talking last week of how, how you become like the gods you worship. If you worship money, you become greedy. If you worship sex, you become enslaved to the idol of lust. Well, the same is true when you worship the living God. When you worship a God who is merciful and compassionate, it begins to change your heart, doesn't it? That ought to follow. The better you know him, the deeper you know him, the more the reality of his mercy has touched your heart, the more you become like him. And this has been true. And so the Cinnamon Network, which is helps connect uh, churches with stuff going on in neighborhoods all around the country today, says that the church in our country saves the economy about three billion pounds a year in in volunteerism, in just the giving of service to communities, which is an incredible statistic, isn't it? And uh, so often we find that the forces of the world around are against the church and against the church's agenda. But if you took the church out of the picture, a lot of Situations would crumble even overnight in our country. And I find that amazing and wonderful. Now, I want us to speak into this subject, but friends, as we get into this, I need to make it clear that what we're not doing today. I don't want to speak to you today about social justice. And I don't want to speak to you today about social action projects either. 
And I want to briefly explain to you why that's the case, because I sense that I'm walking on slightly controversial ground here. So I'm going to just quickly spell this out, and we can talk about it later if that's what you want to do. First of all, we're not talking today about social justice, and I'll tell you why. I think a lot of talk about social justice can be a proxy for true compassion. What I mean is it's much easier to discuss at the level of the intellect what you believe are the answers to society's problems without ever actually engaging your heart in the, real, in the needs of real people. You see this all the time in the media, don't you? That very often the people most vociferous and most vocal in discussions around social justice issues, whether it's politicians or, or prominent media personalities, they're not necessarily, I'm not saying it's always the case, but they're not necessarily the people who are actually engaging with uh, those who have needs on a day-to-day basis. And it's very easy to talk about the issues at the, at the head level and never actually be a compassionate person. You just like winning an argument or you like sort of uh, fighting for causes, those kinds of things. And I'm not saying it's not important, but I just want to say I think that's possible. I think it's even likely. Another reason why I don't want to talk about social justice is because although I believe that the work is vital, I also think it can hide other motives in our hearts. That you can engage with social justice issues really from a motivation of things like greed. You know, just despising the rich, for example. An envy or judgment of others. And it's very much, we fall into the trap of what Jesus described the judgment as trying to take the speck of sawdust out of somebody's eye while you have a plank in your own eye. I think a lot of people, when they talk around social justice issues, are very quick to point the finger at others. And really what it does is cover up a world of sin in our own hearts. And so when we deal with it at a theoretical level, I'm not convinced that it's very helpful for our own spirits or our own hearts. And I don't think that's the place to begin. I really don't. It can just become an opportunity for what these days people call virtue signaling. What what that means is that on social media, you can post articles that express uh, compassion for certain needs in society. But what has that cost you? It's cost you absolutely nothing to put it on your social media profile. But what it's won you is the image of being a compassionate, uh, left-leaning person, hasn't it? Right? So I think that talking at that level can cover a whole world of sin in our hearts. Here's another thing. I think the, that we're often very badly informed on what biblical justice is all about. We tend to think about biblical justice main, or, or justice mainly through the lens of 20th century theories, not through the lens of what the Bible says is a just society. And the Bible has a much more slimmed down version of justice than we actually realize. It has mainly to do with fair process, a blind legal process, the non-oppression of the poor by the rich, where the rich could take in day laborers and then not give them the full wage at the end of the day, those kinds of things. And by biblical measures, we live in an incredibly just society. And we mustn't take that for granted. So often, often a lot of the shouting around justice is not actually just at all. It's merely uh, a kind of, actually, it goes against many of the currents of what biblical justice is about, especially regarding property rights, which is a fundamental plank of biblical justice. And I sense that some of this immediately, some of you are going to disagree with, but I just want to lay it out there, and you can go away, think about it, or talk with me. And here's my last point on, on why we're not talking about social justice, because the Bible is much more concerned to establish justice within the church than it is for the church to impose or to fix it in society. 
You won't find the early church going around trying to fix society at the political level. What you do find is them creating a unique island in the context of an unjust world where slave and wealthy rich masters worship side by side as equals. That is what you find in the early church. So that it wasn't push our justice out into the world and change the world. It was rather, listen friends, if you want to belong to the kingdom of God, look at what it is like inside the church. We are a unique organization. So I don't want to talk to you about social justice. Similarly, equally controversially, I don't want to talk to you about social action projects either. Because although I think it's actually extraordinary that Christians have often been at the forefront of leading the world in these areas, and I think it's a natural outworking of the gospel that we believe, as will become plain as we unpack the story of the Good Samaritan, listen, the Bible has almost nothing to say about the, the call of the church to, uh, to do this stuff outside of its own walls. Which is a very interesting thing. Now, I'm not saying that the church shouldn't. I'm not saying it's wrong for the church to do those things. But if you read carefully all the New Testament emphasis on these subjects, it's always about looking at the needs within the body of the church and finding ways to care for the poor and the downtrodden and those who are in need within the family of God. Almost every emphasis in the New Testament is on that theme. And often, it's got to be said, because a lot of churches think that we begin with work outside the body of the church, and actually end up with churches that are not caring and not loving families internally. And I want, I'd never want us to get the balance wrong here. And of course, I'm not saying that we as a church are not called to do things outside of our walls. I absolutely believe that that is the case and will be the case in the future. However, I want us to build a church which is patterned on what? the biblical mandate is, and I'm trying to help you to see why this would be the case. Now, why is it that the main purpose of the church is not doing social action stuff outside of our walls? And the simple answer is because Jesus himself showed far more interest in people's eternal destinies than in fixing their temporal circumstances. Whenever you see Jesus talking about what his mission is on the earth, the things he talks about are his passion to see people saved. He says things like this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His first interest is in seeing people rescued from hell, rescued from their sin rescued from the brokenness of a life lived outside of God's family and brought into forgiveness and cleansing. And unfortunately, when people lose sight of that as the primary reason we are here, then you can be urgent about fixing people's temporary circumstances and forget that their very life hangs in the balance before a holy God. All the way through, you keep reading what Jesus says about his own mission on the earth. He says things like this in Mark 10. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You think, well, there it is. He came to live a life of service. But then he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So while there are all kinds of ways that Christians and Jesus himself showed himself serving the world at large, the most important thing by almost an infinite amount is the fact that he came to pour out his life and his blood to save people from death. And I think this has to be stated because churches have become so unbalanced. There are many churches in the city we live in who actually seem to care nothing for people's eternal destiny and only for fixing or changing society. So you ask me, well, should the church do this stuff? Should the church be involved in you know, social action projects outside of its walls? And the answer is, actually, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, should Christians do these things? To which I would answer emphatically, yes, as you're going to see. This is the outworking, the outflow of what it means to be transformed by the gospel. But there is a difference between the church as an institution and the church organic, as in you, as an individual, going out and doing your calling before Christ. The institution of the church exists for the purpose of making disciples. Calling people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Rescuing them from sin and bringing them into a place where they know God personally and know that their eternity is secure. That is the reason for which the church exists. That's the institutional mission of the church. But when a person is changed by Jesus Christ, the church organic, which is all the unplanned, unorganized, countless ways that you interact with the world around you, you are naturally, the more Christ changes, you are naturally going to be the kind of person who who is involved in all kinds of ways of serving and loving the city that we're in. Now I've given you a fairly rapid overview of what has been many, many hours of deep thinking on these things, but I want to get right into what we are going to talk about today. We're not talking about social justice, we're not talking about social action, so what the heck are we talking about today? Here's what we're talking about. We are talking about the man lying in the road. I think this is something more important and more simple than speaking at the level I've been describing. It's more important because the question that we should begin with is not how can the church fix society, but rather how shall I inherit eternal life? That's where the conversation between this, this lawyer and Jesus began. The lawyer came up to Jesus and says to him, how shall I inherit eternal life? which is a question of much deeper importance than how can society be fixed. And actually, he he asked Jesus to trick him. But Jesus doesn't mind because he thinks it's an important enough question to give a straight answer to. So he begins to engage him on the level he's at. I also think this is a more important way of looking at things. Because it's more simple to understand that we're not primarily here to be about the work of changing the world but about the work of simply loving our neighbors, which unfortunately is the thing that can be missed in the effort to change the world, and it is a much clearer mandate in the scriptures. So friends, here's the situation. When Jesus asks, what is it that you are called to as a godly person? He says it's two things. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you do that? Is that who you are? 
Are you a person who's come into a relationship with God in that way? But then he says the second thing is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus tells a story to set up a picture or a test to find out whether you are the person who loves neighbors. And this test, this picture, is, is a profound exploration of our reactions. Who is the man lying in the road? Who is the man that you find broken, bleeding, and half dead in the road? It's the single mother in need of time off from relentlessly looking after children with no help. It's the colleague whose marriage is falling apart. People are awkwardly avoiding the subject. It's the fellow student who's paralyzed by anxiety and fear and dread and unable to work or to study effectively. It's the the teenager who's being bullied at school and whose whole person is being crushed under the weight of feeling rejection and the cruelty of other children. It's the sick patient on the ward who has no friends or family to visit. A much more common situation than you'd, you'd think. It's the neighbor who you realize has no friends. No one visits and they don't go out. It's the immigrant who is struggling with the visa process without the support of a community. It's that guy who was just made redundant and looks hopeless and forlorn. We could go on. I think when Jesus told the story, he doesn't want you to take it literally. It's not just about a man lying on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is about what happens when you stumble across need in another person's life in front of you. What your heart does in that situation, how you react. So what I want to do is, I know that's been the longest introduction in the history of sermons. But I, um, so we're going to move rapidly. But what I want to do is give you seven quick tests for the heart. <laughs> Which should take us from here to Christmas. And then um, I will move quickly. Seven things that I think jump out of this passage. Here's the first one. Beware the excuses of self-justification. So interesting how when the lawyer asks him the question. And this is such a, a lawyer's way of thinking, isn't it? To find a loophole. <laughs> Don't even try, Chris. Uh, it says, and Jesus says, you've answered this correctly, do this and you'll live. You know, love God, love your neighbor. The lawyer says, verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So clever. So cunning. And this is the greatest danger, friends. This isn't just a lawyer's problem, okay? We all need to look at our own hearts at this point and recognize that basically the narrowing of the definition of neighbor is always going to be your get-out clause when it comes to loving other people, isn't it? Now, I think the Bible's very clear that you do have a, a greater sense of duty for people who are nearer to you. The biggest duty you have is to your family. The Bible's very clear on this. Honor your father and mother. Paul says that the widows should only be taken care of, it should be taken care of within their families first, and then only the church can take over if there's problems there. And of course that that has to be a principle, but 
if you start only from the perspective of, you know, who is in my radius of my responsibility, then you're going to fall into the same trap this lawyer does. Who's my neighbor? And basically what it is at heart is is a desire to self-justify, to excuse our inaction by drawing certain people outside the radius of our responsibility. Now, I, I find it interesting how Jesus doesn't make this impossibly broad. He doesn't tell a story about people on the other side of the world who are suffering. Because I think when you consider the weight of the need of the world that we are now aware of, given that we have so much instant access to seeing these things, I think you, know, you could think, well, is everybody my neighbor? And actually, that's not actually where Jesus goes with this. But what he does do is he pushes the man beyond where he's comfortable to consider those beyond the proximity of his own life. People he might otherwise ignore. Beware the excuses of self-justification. And here's the question that goes with that. How would Jesus stretch your definitions of neighbor? I don't think there's a person in this room who oughtn't be challenged by that question. How would Jesus stretch your definition of neighbor? Here's a second point. Beware the self-deception of religion and good deeds. Most of us think about our actions in terms of religious quotients. We do this subconsciously, not explicitly. That there's a certain amount of goodness that I need to do in my life. So that we can, we can mentally tick things off. You, know, you, you give to the church, you serve in the church, you, um, you do certain things in charity, whatever, and you think of that as your kind of as giving that portion of your life, the good deeds portion of your life done. And I find it so interesting how Jesus explodes that way of thinking here. And he does it by picking on a priest and a Levite. You've got to recognize the Levites and the priests, they all belong to the kind of priestly class in the nation. Those whose whole existence was, was designed around serving other people. So these guys, of all people in the nation, were the guys who lived outward-looking lives. They were professional servants. They were professionally engaged with serving the nation around them. So if anyone's going to think that we're living our lives and we're loving our neighbors in the right way, probably these guys would think it. Because from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed at night, the whole of their energy and existence is geared towards serving others. And yet Jesus says, here, here they are in the secret place where no one's watching. And they do the wrong thing. And the challenge here is to ask yourself the question, do you ever think to yourself, I've done my bit? I've done my bit. You know, because I work for this organization that's compassionate or because I give to this charity or because I serve in my church or whatever. You think, I've done my bit. And Jesus wants to explode that way of thinking. The whole of our lives is to be lived out, not a portion of our lives. Beware the self-deception of religion and good deeds where you think you've got that covered. Here's a third challenge. Take care of the temptation to cross over the road. The easy way to avoid need and the easy way actually to avoid having to say no to need. We all do this every time we see the charity guys in the street, don't we? That kind of thing. Is to step around the need. 
So Jesus like, tells the story. He says this is exactly what happened. He says, now, by chance, the priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, presumably from a distance, he passed by on the other side. He made a wide berth around the half-dead man. And then the Levite does exactly the same thing. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And it's a vivid way of describing how we silence our conscience early and quickly. The minute that you think you're at risk of feeling compassion for something and having to do something about the situation, you can very quickly shut off all communication and blinker yourself to what's going on in that situation. It's easy to do it, and we do it almost without thinking. What are we rather called to do? To pause. To look. Look lingeringly if you need to. To ask questions. To investigate to understand, to run towards the problem, not to step around it. So I want to ask you this question. Have you become habitually self-protective of your energy and your resources and your time and your money? Even fearful of being sucked into something that might take up too much of you so that you step around rather than look at the need in front of you. Take care of the temptation to cross over the road. Here's the fourth thing. Learn to listen to your heart and not just your head. There were many reasons for the priest and the Levite not to do anything that day. They could have reasoned to themselves, it's futile, he's half dead already, he's better off just dying quickly than me, you know, helping him along in the process. And probably the biggest reason why they wouldn't have stopped, given the situation, there's a strong possibility, no, the likelihood that the guys who'd, have, who'd beaten him and left him half dead had just stood behind the rock waiting for the next sucker to come along. And so head can rule over heart, can't it? And we do this all the time when we see needs around us. We can rule with our head and rationalize reasons why we shouldn't be involved or do anything about it. But look how Jesus says the compassion. Look at how the Samaritan was moved to do something. It says, when he saw him, he had compassion. Which is to say that it was his heart that led instead of his head. And I think that has to be stated again and again. Because so often people think that the biblical call to love others is a voluntary thing, a a willing thing. And of course there's something of the will involved. But we, we actually don't get the full picture when we we don't realize that to love your neighbor involves the heart as well. It has to involve genuine gut-level compassion. Jesus modeled that first and foremost time and time again through the Gospels when he saw situations of need. It says he had, in the Greek, bowels of compassion. It's how this splankner, like this deep compassion that welled up from his gut. It's interesting, by the way, that only recently a doctor's discovering that the amazing connection between your brain and your gut, which is why you get diarrhea before exams. There's all kinds of stuff that goes in two directions. Which is, uh, and it, Jesus was moved deep in his gut when he saw situations of need, and he allowed that to lead him to the need rather than away from it. He ran to the knees because he felt love deep down in his spirit. And I want to ask you the question, what has moved you recently? 
Too often, I think, we can grow dull and unmoved by needs that we see constantly. What has moved you recently? Where have you been provoked towards compassion? Here's the fifth thing. Let your love be spontaneous, unplanned, and reactive. Let it be spontaneous, unplanned, and reactive. And the commentators tell us that the priests and the Levites, most of them or many of them lived in Jericho. It's just through the hills and down into the valley. So it wasn't too far away from Jerusalem. And that ideal place, kind of in the commuter belt of Jerusalem, where probably the properties were a little bit cheaper, but you had a decent road up into Jerusalem where you could go and do your duties at temple and then get back home quickly for dinner um, to see the family and whatever. And so loads of these priests and Levites lived in Jericho. So when Jesus tells a story about a priest and a Levite traveling on the road, the image that I think he's capturing for his listeners is not unlike the crammed commuter trains in London, of people traveling in and out from their place of abode to the place of work and back again. Now what do you think is on their mind when they're traveling in one or other direction? The answer is that they are, they're going about their business. They're not just, they don't just have time to spare. These guys are either on duty at temple and they've got to get there to get on, there on time and take over from the last guys who are on duty. Or they're heading home and they need to go and see their family. Whichever way it is, they're in a hurry. And you ask yourself, when are we least likely to see need? And I think the answer is obviously when we're in a hurry. This is probably one of the greatest dangers that touches our lives in London, that we're always in such a hurry that you can literally walk right past the person in need and not see it. The amount of times you can walk past someone on the street just crying to themselves and think it's just normal. It's never normal, is it? When are we least likely to see it? It's when we're in a hurry. But Jesus tells us how the Samaritan was different. It says, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii gave them to the innkeeper, said, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when you come back. In other words, he was massively inconvenienced by the problem that he came across. It took him out of his agenda. It cost him money and finances. It meant that he had to spend the night in the closest inn, taking care of this guy, probably staying up all night, seeing to his wounds and making sure that he doesn't die. The question is, does kindness feel to you like an interruption in the things that you have planned for your life, even for your day? Let your love be spontaneous, unplanned and reactive. Here's a sixth thing. Beware prejudice that distorts your perception. Of course, one of the main points that Jesus wants us to see in this parable is the racial divide here. That a Jewish man is lying half dead and that it is a Samaritan who the Jews considered to be kind of half-breeds. They were a mix of, uh, of different racial groups and they weren't pure Jewish and they didn't worship God in the same way that the Jews did. And the Jews looked down on them. And Jesus deliberately says it was a Samaritan who did the right thing here. It's so interesting, by the way, when Jesus finishes the story and he asks the lawyer, he says to the lawyer, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor? The lawyer can't bring it 
even to spit out the word, the Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. Which is just to illustrate really how, how, much, how deep these grievances were between these two people groups. And here's the challenge for us. The truth is we all find it easier to feel compassion towards people who are more like us. Or in situations that we think we could be vulnerable to. Than to ever feel compassion for people who are in situations unlike ours. And in fact, it's very easy to judge to layer on judgment and explanations for why this person is experiencing the suffering they're suffering when they're unlike you and when they've made choices that you would never have made. I want to ask you, are you aware of heart superiority when you see needs around you? Are you aware of that instinctive feel to not only see a need but to, to look down upon it? Or explain it in terms of poor choices or these kinds of things. The word, the crucial word here is the one who showed him mercy. Mercy is the way God has treated us. If anyone has a right to look down on us, it's God. But God is the one who stepped over that gap. And here's my last challenge. Look for ways to love personally. Personally. And the reason why I stress this is because I think, I kind of hinted this right at the start, I think you can be doing a lot of things to help people. You can be giving. You can be organizing. You can be planning. And certainly the priest and the Levite lived their whole lives along that vein. That's, that's kind of what they did for a living. But it is the unplanned, the face-to-face, the momentary opportunities that expose the heart of those men. It's when they stumble upon a need that they, they didn't know they were going to meet with that day. That's what really shows what's in the heart, isn't it? Because everything else in your life, you can kind of question to a certain degree whether your motives are right, whether they're pure, the reasons for which you're doing things. And I think we can have all all kinds of mixed reasons to do good things. And I don't want us to get into the whole thing of like judging each other or judging ourselves. It's better you do good things than don't do them, right? But the real test always of whether your heart is growing in love for your neighbor, whether you're becoming more like Jesus, is what you do in those moments when no one is looking and when you encounter a need that you never planned for and never expected. The face-to-face stuff. The stuff that costs you personally. Friends, I want to bring this to a close, but I'm really conscious that for all of us, when we think about these, these points that Jesus is deliberately poking at in our hearts when he talks about what love really is, that there's a certain t- tenderness, isn't there, and a painfulness, because we really all feel that, that we are very much guilty of, of, of looking past need, aren't we? I mean, who of us can claim to now fulfill what Jesus is describing? None of us. How can we do this? And the answer is, in a sense, we cannot. I don't think it's possible to love to the extent that Jesus himself loves, to love with that pure love of neighbor. I was reading Matthew Henry's commentary on this, the great 17th century writer. 
And he says, when he looks at this parable, he says, listen, there's another way we can understand this. He says, in a sense, we are the man lying half dead on the road. We've been beaten by Satan, crushed and left half dead. And the scriptures actually say dead, spiritually dead, dying in the road. And the law of Moses hasn't helped us. The law which comes along and says, love your neighbor, hasn't helped us. Just as the priest and the Levite came along and offered no help. All it does is leave us there bleeding and wallowing in the problem of our failure. We're unable to change our own hearts. We're unable, aren't we, to to bring life from death. We can't change ourselves. We're like that man lying in the road half dead. But Jesus is the Samaritan. Jesus is the one who comes to a strange people, who crosses a divide and reaches down into our compassion, with compassion into our situation. He's the one who, instead of pouring on oil and wine, pours his own blood into the wound of our festering sin. Even the sin of your lack of love, of my lack of love of neighbor. And he comes and he, he brings his blood to cleanse us of these problems, these faults, these failures within our hearts. He's the Samaritan. And not only does he cover our past failings, but just as the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So also Jesus covers the full cost at his own expense of our brokenness and sin. He himself absorbed our sins in his body on the tree. That's what the Bible says. Including the sin of our hard hearts that lack love for neighbor. That sin above all, in a sense. And now, friends, when you wake up the next day and you know that you're you're healed, imagine the relief in that man's heart when he woke up in the inn and realized that his wounds had been tended to and that a stranger had come his way and bound him and paid for his treatment. Imagine the sense of joy and elation to know that that wasn't the end of his life, that he gets a second chance. That should be you every day. Every day when you think about what Jesus has done for you. And it's out of that place of gratitude and indebtedness that we now live lives modeled on what he has done for us. I want us to allow these thoughts to sit in our hearts as we take communion. As we eat the bread and drink the wine, I believe that God is wanting to change us and the way that we react to the world around us. And I want us to sit and just sing this first song as we pass the bread and pass the wine and let the guys just minister to us through the music and the words and ask God to come and change us. If you felt particular conviction about situations in your life that you know that you can minister to but haven't yet, you've been like the priest or the Levite, use this as your opportunity to say sorry, to repent before God and to commit yourself to doing a new thing tomorrow. But if you're just aware of a general need of God's Holy Spirit, we always come back to the cross, don't we? And say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a failure, but I'm so grateful that you came and gave your blood for people like me.